Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me, as in this episode, we get to speak with Jen Margaret. Now, we have an amazing conversation about her life, her background, and then also dive deep into her work as an advocate and educator about Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Make sure you check out the show notes for links if you want to find out more. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I learned a lot, and I know you will as well. If you do, then don't forget, there's more than 300 other episodes in the back catalog. So make sure you check them out, subscribe so you don't miss any future ones, and let another person know about this show. Seeds only grows because people like you tell somebody else about this podcast. And I'm very grateful for every time that you do that. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Jen. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Jen Margaret, who's a treaty educator from Groundwork Facilitating Change. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation um, because we've gotten to know each other probably over the last year, and I'm really interested in what you're doing when it comes to education about the treaty and the role that we all play in this society that we're in. So I want to dive deeply into that. But before we talk about that, and I know you've listened to episodes before, so you know what I'm about to say, I like to know the history and just work out where people are from so that we can then frame what they do today in that context. So in your situation, can you tell us a little bit about your life when you were, say, four or five years old? So just acknowledging where we are gathered in mana whenua here uh, and that we're close to where I grew up. Um, so I grew up in Karumata, Leeston, or just out of there, um, on a farm. Um, my people are ancestors from Denmark, Germany, England, Scotland, Ireland, the usual mix, uh, who arrived in Canterbury um, sort of mostly 1860s, 1870s. And so uh, I grew up in the Rohi on the lands of Kaitarua Hekiheki, uh, which is something that I didn't actually learn whose lands I was on for a, quite some time. Mm-hmm. Well, I was sort of proudly thought about being a fifth generation Pākehā and then um, it took me to become an adult to learn about the many generations um, of Tangata Whenua, whose lands I'd grown up on. Mm-hmm. So four or five, that's going back a wee way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm actually this weekend going to the Ellesmere AMP show, uh, which is happening again after a, a pause because of COVID for the last few years. And things like the AMP show were a really big part of my childhood. Right. Uh, extended family in the Ellesmere area. Uh, my Dad was a farmer, my mum was a teacher, uh, so grew up on a farm and had all the aspects of a rural upbringing, I suppose, and the privileges of that upbringing. Uh, so things and what, like... And, and what sort of a farm was it, just to set the scene? Because oh, we, we get listeners from all over the world, and I'm curious, yeah. you know, like, was there lots of sheep or cows, or was it growing grains, or, yeah, what type yeah, of farm? Yeah, mixed cropping and sheep. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and, like, how many sheep would there be? Is it hundreds or thousands or... <laughs> hundreds, I yep. think. Need to check with my dad. But yeah. not these massive, you know, in the... Um, 
not like Alexmere a station. area. They're you know, not yeah. massive stations, so they're smaller yeah. and mixed. Um, yeah, mixed cropping and mm. grain and um, sheep. And it was uh, found that my grandparents had bought, and then my dad, as their oldest son, moved on to um, that farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so growing up, there was quite a strong. I mean, I did the things of feeding the lambs and you know feeding the sheep, <laughs> um, but a fairly strong uh, gender roles, I think, in terms of. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with my mum, did a lot of baking. Uh, We always had, you know, a cake and two lots of biscuits and a slice in the tins at all times. Uh, So that was a really big part of um, my childhood. And did you have siblings as well, was it? An older brother um, and an older sister, yeah. Mm. Yeah. My impression, um, because I actually, I have an accent, right, but I grew up in New Zealand, so it's very mm. confusing for people. But we moved down to near Amaru, mm. just north, a little place called Papakayo. And so I grew up on not a farm itself, but everyone around us was on a farm. And one of the things that I learned was that it was a very outdoors childhood, you know, like always going out and um, helping with tailing of the lambs or, you know, helping with the crops, you know, bringing them in. Was that a a correct impression for your childhood as well was a lot of outdoor activity yeah there was a lot of outdoor activity I think the thing about farming life though is is, as I mentioned in terms of the cooking is that there's a huge domestic element as well Mm -hmm. and so that was a really strong part of it too Um, just in terms of all of those not only cooking but um, I remember getting my first bought outfit from a shop like not made by my mum when I was 13 from Glassons, it was in pastels, it was pretty cool. Um, but that, or I, I think of um, actually the generational change that that reflects in a way in terms mm. of all of those those things that um, women on generally were doing on farms alongside um, being farmers too. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And for those who haven't been to that area, sort of mm. Ellesmere, Leeston area, um, how big is it? How many people live in that, like Leeston itself? Leeston itself, again, has grown quite a lot, and probably particularly post-earthquakes. But it's a sort of small rural Canterbury town. But we didn't live, you know, still remember it being a really big deal when I was kind of old enough and, you know, wanted lollies from the shop to do the half-hour bike ride to get there. (laughs) So um, it's Canterbury Plains, very flat area. Uh, Yeah, and... It's about 30 minutes drive from Ōtautahi, from Christchurch. But again, when I think of the changes now, because lots of people commute these days, but in my childhood, because I had um, grandparents in the city, we would come into town about once a week. Mm. And that was actually something that not everybody did. Lots Mm. of people didn't come to town nearly as much. It's amazing how um, things change over time, because I live in Rolleston now, which isn't that far from Leeston. And so there's a vast, uh, large motorway which connects, you know, that area into Mm. the city now. So it's just, yeah, it's interesting to think at that time it would have been quite a big deal to go to the city, you know, to Christchurch. So, yeah. And what sort of subjects were interesting to you? Because I'm really keen to find out about what you're doing today. Mm. And, yeah, coming through high school, what were the subjects that really stood out? When I was at high school, in probably late primary school, I 
really loved reading and a sort of special memory as a child was coming into town to a book club that Margaret Mahi ran in the back room at the old um, library in Christchurch and that was really special. I enjoyed most subjects. I didn't have any particular interests. I didn't do um, any New Zealand history in my compulsory schooling, Mm -hmm. so that wasn't part of it. I didn't um, learn history or history of Aotearoa until I was at university, very close to here, at Mm -hmm. at Canterbury University. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that sort of high school years, because I'm interested in what you do today and then thinking about the high school, it really wasn't part of you know, because it it wasn't a major part of the education system. It wasn't on your radar at that point, was it? No. And I mean, uh, New Zealand history and Titriti and all of those things are only becoming a um, part of the curriculum next year, Mm. (laughs) in 2023, so uh, as a core part of the curriculum. So I think probably the things that shaped broadening my interests uh, were well, not so much the subjects that I took, but after my fifth form year, um, my parents separated my fifth form year and my mum and I moved to town and I moved from Ellesmere College, which was relatively small, to Burnside High, which was huge. Right. And Burnside had a huge range of subjects, so you could do things like archaeology and ancient history and journalism and a lot of... So it was a kind of broadening of... The people that I was spending time with and also the subjects and things that I was Mm. interested in at that time. And so getting to the end of high school, did you know what you wanted to study? No. So my first year at Canterbury, I did French and philosophy. And then I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I took a year out to travel and spent time in went and worked in bars in England when I was 19 and doing did nannying and did some travel. When I came back, I came back to Canterbury after a year and I didn't really want to do another year of, an additional year to get a BA and fees had come in for university. So right. that was a contributing factor at that time. Yep. And so, so this is what, 1993-ish yes, or so? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, 1991, I think I might have got one for a year when I came back. Oh, okay. But yeah, yeah, 91, that I came back. And so the one subject that I could change to, having done one year of a BA, was religious studies. And religious studies actually was quite open in terms of the other subjects that you could take. Mm. So I did feminist studies papers and I did Maori studies papers Mm. alongside mainly comparative uh, religion and religion and politics papers. Uh, So it was more like a sociology degree in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so was that then, you know, in an academic setting, was that your first introduction to sort of te ao Maori, you know, what this was and... It really was because mm. right through my childhood, I mean, we did poi and rako mm. at primary school, but I really didn't have any context for understanding that that those were things of a culture of Aotearoa, mm. and which seems weird, but yeah, I, it wasn't really until I started to do that learning at university, and in terms of understanding history. In fourth year, I took a paper called The Evolution of 19th Century Māori Thought, and that's where I first learned about um, Te Tiriti or Waitangi. And 
It was 1993, so it was when the Naitahu settlement, there was a lot in the news about the settlement at that time. A lot of it very negative portrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I found out and learnt that history, it just made sense of a lot of what I was seeing in the media mm. um, and many other things too. And I was actually really mad that I'd never, it had taken to that sort of place of privilege being at university mm. and random choices in, in many ways, a fourth year of paper, and that to find out mm. just such a basic thing about so it made quite an impression on you at that point as well because i I really did i'm really interested in what you do today so i always like Mm. to know the origins you know so that that paper really got you thinking about different conceptions and you know the past and history yeah and just understanding the basics Mm. i'd never learned about the treaty before then so it was like this is fundamental (laughs) to understanding relationships here Mm. and so it was a pretty pivotal moment and it aligned actually with I think I feel I've been really fortunate right throughout my life to have some key mentors sometimes just people who have been in my life for a short amount of time but Mm. Christine Dan was a feminist studies lecturer and I did a paper with her in 1993 it was the celebration of um, suffrage and we looked at where the funding had been distributed to and a lot of it has was about celebrating past rather than challenging the future which was part of the motto of that year mm. so she was a real um, activist uh, academic I suppose activist scholar and so she really encouraged me to use the data and to we organized the Jenny Shipley Memorial um, soup kitchen and brought all the organizations together um, many organisations working for Justice for Women who hadn't been funded uh, to come together to be sort of recognised and to, to point to the politics of that funding distribution. Mm. So I think her role in sort of saying this isn't just about learning this stuff, when you when you learn mm. these things, what are you going to do about it right. in terms of um, shifting people, the world, understandings. There's kind of a responsibility that comes with the knowledge. Exactly. And and it's interesting you mentioned the timing of it, like settlements are happening, so you are seeing it outworked in terms of how media is portraying something or attitudes of people. And I guess you're getting the the foundational knowledge to build on, like, well, hang on, what's what's going on here? What's actually happening? Yeah. Yeah. So, So what did that open up for you in terms of your own journey like at that point did you take action in that direction or what happened next I did I went when I finished university I went into working on training opportunities programs Um, and it was at a time when treaty was coming into the curriculum but many people like me had learned absolutely nothing about it so I at school and so I took my sort of academic knowledge I did a um, adult education course at um, Teachers College was at the time and my key project was kind of taking their academic knowledge and making it more accessible I for see. use in my in my daily work so adult education has been a strong sort of stream I've worked for 10 years up a bit later after that at Manuko Institute of Technology mm. and so that was sort of that weaving in of that um 
interest in sharing mm. and building understanding around um, Te Tiriti Waitangi. Mm. And from that time, I, well, I spent some years overseas after um, doing that initial teaching in, here in Christchurch, and when I moved back, I moved to Auckland. Mm. And that was when I really connected most strongly with um, other people, particularly, well, both Tangata Whenua and um, Tangata Tiriti uh, active in networks to build understanding of mm. Te Tiriti o Waitangi and yeah. so that work really built more mm. strongly from that time. Yeah that's fascinating. So just talk us through like the time overseas. Mm. Did that change your perception you know living offshore and then coming back? Do you think that affected you in any way or was it always there that this is something that you felt really passionately about? I think from the moment I, I learned about it, I felt passionate about it. I think that passion and alignment was sort of strengthened when I came back from overseas. I was involved with peace movement and some critical moments of uh, working um, with alongside rangatahi Māori with the, and, and we were the tangata tiriti, the non-Māori rōpū for the United Nations um, Asia-Pacific Disarmament Conference that happened and kind of the key thing through that was you know if we're going to look at disarmament in the Pacific well actually we need to look at what's happening here Mm. in Aotearoa and you can't um, think about disarmament without thinking about colonisation and so what's the processes that we need to be engaging here in Aotearoa so it really kind of brought those things some critical learning in that time. In terms of the time overseas I don't feel like that particularly change it was more the things that that happened here it built my awareness in in other ways mm. and i think wherever i've been i did i have had that keen awareness of justice and injustice from, from mm-hmm. quite a young time so i was seeing things when i was overseas that that probably strengthened that awareness but also in terms of coming home i felt like this is the place where i sh- I should be doing yeah. <laughs> these things, yeah. this mahi. This yeah. is where there's work to be done. You know. Yeah, well, that it's similar since for me because I lived overseas for 11 years. So I was in London, Tokyo, Sydney, like very different to New Zealand from Aotearoa. So it was like when I came back, I was choosing to come back rather than staying offshore. And I was choosing to refine what I was doing in terms of being a lawyer, choosing to work with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and charities and others so for me anyway it was quite a big shift from what I'd been doing to what I do today Mm -hmm. so for it was a helpful I guess reset point to be coming back Mm -hmm. yeah I'd love to find out a bit more about what you are doing today so Mm -hmm. um, yeah how did it how did you get involved in in this particular area Um, and yeah just talk us through like coming back to New Zealand and then what what's led to what you're doing today? When I came back, as I said, I was based in Tamaki Makoto in Auckland and connected with a group of um, people, Tamaki treaty workers, and so also had networks through peace movement and some key people who were active in there, a key mentor to me, Joan MacDonald, who was a sort of leader in many movements actually and a connector across movements. Uh, though she would never sort of name herself as a leader. She was a very humble, quiet woman. Um, 
And so working across sort of those, those um, spaces, I was really active in a whole lot of stuff when I first came back, you know, lots of different social justice movements. And I had a moment of thinking, I'm doing too much. This isn't really sustainable. And I felt like there needs to be more people who actually give their entire focus to thinking about how we make um, te tiriti honouring change yeah. and so I decided to focus there and then I had a reflection about a year later of like well I'm only I've kind of tried to cut down all these other commitments and I'm just as busy as I was <laughs> so <laughs> sure. that's the nature of this <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not something that's confined of course mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I suppose it was a few paths because I was uh I got involved with Treaty Resource Centre, an Auckland-based organisation, doing this mahi. I, living in Auckland, was part of networks. We had a network of younger people uh, involved in treaty action. It was called ARC. And so every year going to Waitangi and being involved in responding to the issues of the time. You know, water and seabed was a massive issue during the time I was there. Uh, the Tuhoi raids, all of those things happening when I was based in Auckland. So a lot of that stuff happening alongside being involved um, and doing more learning about actually working with groups in Mm -hmm. terms of building understanding of uh, what was happening prior to the treaty, why we have a treaty, what the Māori text Te Tiriti o Waitangi says, what happened Mm. afterwards, colonisation, its impacts, and where we're at now. And so that work I was involved in in Tamaki Makaurau for a long time and then continued um, when I shifted to Te Whanganui Atara, to Wellington, where mm-hmm. I now live and mm-hmm. have been for the last 12 years. And uh, when I moved there, sort of the, after a few years, um, groundwork at the organisation that um, I lead is established that because that sort of reflected being Mm. having moved from Auckland and being based there during that time I was really fortunate as well uh, in 2010 to have a Churchill fellowship and I went to um, Canada um, and to Couple of had a couple of interviews with people as well um, in San Francisco, talking to people who non-indigenous people working in support of indigenous justice, and then in 2013 with support from um, a Quaker fellowship, I uh, did a book called Working as Allies, and so that involved conversations with people here and in Australia as well, and built on the work um, that I'd done in North America. So that's been sort of another thread of the work that mm. um, I'm involved in. That's great. Yeah. Well, before we talk about the detail of what you do in mm. terms of facilitating and going and, and leading sessions and things, can you talk about some of the motivations or what you're hoping to achieve by doing it? Um, so I, a theme here is education <laughs> and, you know, helping people to understand the background and the history. But can you just describe a little bit about, I guess the question is, why do you do this? What are you hoping mm. to achieve? Well, I fundamentally feel like um, Te Tiriti Waitangi is the document that allows me to be here, allows uh, those of us who are tangata tiriti, who are non Māori, to have a place here. It is the relationship that allowed us to make our home and so if we are to um, live here well and and honourably we need to honour 
that commitment. Mm. And because it hasn't been honoured, Aotearoa is in a place of deep imbalance, and Te Tiriti continues to provide the framework for restoring balance. Mm. And that requires all our efforts. It requires those of us who are a Pākehā, a Tangata Tiriti, a Noa Māori, to understand what those commitments are, understand what um, what was agreed to, and what that agreement means for our relationships today, mm. and the necessity for that for us to flourish, for Aotearoa to flourish. Mm. Yeah. And so that's what really drives me. And I think it's hard to action, you know, bringing to life and honouring it if we don't understand what it is yeah. and why it's there and see our place in it. So a lot of my work is around that, mm. um, building that base understanding, but also working with organisations particularly to go, well, what does this mean for what we do right. every day? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'd be I'd be interested now to ask the more detailed questions. What do you do? Because mm. <laughs> my impression is that you're going into different organisations whether they're private companies or government departments or schools or education, you know, and and bringing them, um, you know, a chance to better understand the past. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you're actually doing. Mm. But then also I'd love to learn a little bit. You know, that's yeah. the point of the podcast. So what are some of the key points that you're trying to get across mm. to people? Um, not trying to steal and cherry pick just highlights, but, yeah, if you could let us know, yeah, what are some things our listeners could be aware of? Mm. So in terms of what we do, we respond to the call from organisations and particularly the call from Tangata Whenua um, as a Pākehā-led organisation. We we, uh, need to know that Tangata Whenua are happy and want us to be people coming into their organisation to lead this one part of uh, the work of building understanding of uh, Te Tiriti Waitangi and action. Mm-hmm. And so we work with, you've mentioned, you know, a whole range of organisations, private sector, community sector, government, and we are often these days actually providing the base learning around Te Tiriti Waitangi as, as self-paced learning that people do before they come to a facilitated discussion about what does it mean in our context. I see. Uh, we sometimes do the whole lot in the room, but uh, we've made a lot of changes because of COVID and actually done a whole lot of learning through that about different methods working really effectively mm-hmm. to build um, this understanding. So we, in terms of those key messages that we are conveying through that, I think one of the really big ones is that we're talking about a relationship. Mm-hmm. Te Tiriti is a relationship. And we have responsibilities within a relationship. And so people understanding their place. And I think one of the big misunderstandings potentially for non-Māori is the thinking that te tiriti o Waitangi is a Māori thing. Well, actually, it affirms existing Māori rights of rangatiratanga in Article 2, but it gives a new right for everybody else who is non-Māori. So it's critical mm. to, uh, to tangata tiriti, to non-Māori. So understanding that and uh, understanding that we need to recognise the harm of colonisation and the enduring harm, that it's an ongoing activity, it's not a past event, 
and so we need to act to create change because when we look at the racism that's in our systems and in our ways of working, uh, we need to understand that some of that comes from directly bringing systems from the other side of the world and imposing them um, with the idea that they're inherently superior to the ones that have been in place here for generations, the ones of Māori. And so recognising those things, that racism inherent in our systems, but also knowing that racism has been created. It's it's man-made, so we can, it's not easy, but we can create, we can um, dismantle it and... We're very fortunate to have Te Tiriti o Waitangi as a guide for a, dip, for a, a way of relating. Mm. And so one of the things that we do in all our workshops is an exercise in imagination, thinking about if Te Tiriti o Waitangi had been consistently honoured from 1840, what might we see now? And that's powerful when people envisage it because it also provides the path that we're working, mm. working towards. Mm. And it's one that is, it doesn't mean that we all get on all the time and, you know, everything's completely peaceful and lovely, but it is one where there's so much more uh, health and flourishing, not only between people, but also in relation to to taiao, in Mm. relation to the environment as well. And so it's critical, critical for, has been critical and is critical for now and, and for generations yeah. to come oh it's really good it's it's just good to hear from you you know what what's covered and what the key issues are for me i think you know even thinking about your life growing up in leaston going to ellismere college you didn't really have an understanding or a conception about all these things we're talking about and i like to picture it as that we're all fish in the fishbowl and we're swimming around in the water and we don't know that there's a thing called air because this is how we've grown up this is mm-hmm. what we've been taught but that's the paradigm shift that, that happens. You know, the scales are lifted from the eyes and you realize, oh, there's a different way of looking at this. And for me, it's, a, it's kind of a silly example, but if you look at our roads and you look at the trees that line the roads and you go, oh, there's an oak tree, a maple tree, you know, like they're European trees mm-hmm. which were brought over to match a conception about what the paradigm of... A beautiful street should look like so it's it's been brought it's been brought over but we don't even you don't even really think about it because we grew up that way and yeah the oak tree looks nice and you know whereas what what conception would it be if we'd planted native trees and then that would have encouraged native birds and native wildlife and you know like but it's that paradigm of thinking that you don't even think about the fact that it is the way it is Mm -hmm. and that's what i like this sort of work that you're doing because it causes us to ask questions. And sometimes that can be deeply challenging, especially when people haven't engaged with the deliberate nature of colonisation and the harm of colonisation, for people to engage with and to learn about as adults because we're Mm. working with, with adults, and which is why we're excited about New Zealand histories becoming a core part of the curriculum so that these understandings can be built and actually just our core skills for being citizens, for knowing how to navigate in Aotearoa so, mm. and to, to be here. Uh, because it can be much harder to do that as, as adults. We're continually 
probably the most consistent response that we get to people coming to our workshops is why did I never learn this at mm. school? Why haven't I learned this before? And what we find is that people, when they have that exposure to that learning, just as I did, it's a real, oh, now I can see, now I can mm. understand so much more of what's happening mm. around us in our society right now. And so there's generally much more of a kind of opening up and in generosity or curiosity that can come. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's that opening up. I like that phrasing, you know, opening up or softening, because uh, I think part of it for those of us, because I did grow up in New Zealand, so I'm very similar to you. I didn't really know all of these things. Um, But part of it is acknowledging that and recognizing that there's more to learn. And I know a mutual friend, Kate Frickberg, um, wrote a blog post um, recently, actually sparked by talking on an impact call, I think, that I'd hosted. So I was really interested because I said to her, I'd love to know some of your experiences. And so she was willing to share some of the hard lessons that she's learned trying to be sensitive but actually getting it wrong. And she was very open and vulnerable to say, I didn't get this right. And I think that's really important too, because I know for me, another mutual friend is um, Matariki Kar, and we're working on a paper right now about governance through an indigenous lens. Like, what would that be? So I approach that paper from my Western perspective. You know, I've got a law degree, a history degree. Like, we'll write a paper, and it will it will set out the top ten things that that we can learn from indigenous governance, and and that will be it. But she helped me to understand that. Actually, we need a part one, which is about the impact of colonization and the fact that our paradigm of thinking has been so shaped by the past and what we assume to be the case that my coming in and saying, well, here's the top 10 tips from this way of thinking is actually not that helpful because it's then perpetuating a mindset of colonization, which is, I will take the little bits that I like from this and I'll put them over in my context rather than a true understanding of what's actually going on within this culture and this environment. So I just think it's a maybe a word of warning to our listeners as well. You have to really be very uh, sensitive and, and aware when you're going into this area. And I think one of the interesting things is that when you, well, speaking as Pākehā, come from a culture that has come with its ideas of inherent superiority Mm. uh, and had those systems established that reflect your norms, your ways of working, and they've become the default and the ways that were normal and ordinary, the Māori ways being pushed to the margins. Actually, you're not used to not being right or not knowing at all Mm. it's quite a hardwired sort of thing of our norms being the normal Mm. and so that move from monoculturalism is really critical and the actual ability to uh, open up to my way is one way but it's not the only way Mm. and it's certainly not the way that there are other ways that were around for a long time before my folk turned up here Mm. So I think being aware of the ways that we work actually and our, our kind of default settings and how 
I don't hear it as much, but it used to be in the early days of doing treaty work here in Ōtautahi, people would go, well, we haven't got a culture as Pākehā. So, of course we have. We just don't have to see it. And other people who are not Pākehā can see it really well. We Mm. don't see it because it's the norm. And so I think even just building that awareness of, as you've spoken to, how we might operate and come in with our mindsets and then... The, the potential harm that we can continue to do yeah. through that. And so I'm just speaking, because I do a lot of facilitating as well, and I'm just curious from a facilitation point of view, how do you how do you help people to get to that deep place of understanding this? Because I can imagine that some people, not all people, but some people are coming to this as a box-ticking exercise because they've been told you have to go to this thing. And one of the dangers, I think, is that sometimes people would also go back and say, oh, well, if we just translate the heading of our annual report, then that's, that's it. You know, we've, we've, we've done enough. And the point is that it's kind of a tokenistic thing. It's not really getting below the surface. Yeah, how, how do you help people to, to go there, I guess? I suppose there's a couple of things that, in your question, one is, you know, that potentially it's not only box ticking, but there can be resistance for people coming because their boss has told them they have to do it and they mm-hmm. don't really want to be there. What we find is because we, when we're talking about the history, it's a very deeply researched uh, picture that we're providing and people really appreciate having that. So we really focus firstly on educating and then facilitating conversations once people have got a shared base to talk from. Mm. And actually that can be, people don't have to agree with the information that we provide about our history, but actually being able to to hear it um, and to understand that it is deeply, you know, sourced in, in, um, in, in research and understandings, uh, particularly from Māori, that helps, I think, to then support people to engage in conversations about what we need to do mm-hmm. in terms of action I and mean, we're always asking people when they think about action in every week workshop where no matter how long it is we get people rethinking about their action we're always getting people to think about well think about your action and then think about what impact is this going to have for whānau hapuhiwi Māori mm. because ultimately if we're thinking about te tiriti honouring, we need to be restoring balance and we need to be being mindful that we're not doing actions that are going to continue to boost mm. Pākehā, for instance. So I think the tokenism thing's really interesting because sometimes the fear of tokenism means that people don't do anything. Right, yeah. And it's problematic if you've got the new name but all of your organisational processes and practices are racist for Māori Mm. so that's really problematic but I also think we need to be mindful of going oh we don't want to be tokenistic and then not acting at all right so some in in many of these things there's obviously going to be tension in all of this because we've got more than 180 years of colonisation There's so many tensions and and moving Mm. and challenges to moving forward. But Mm. I also think it it is what we're trying to always encourage people to do is to think that actually it's all about individual 
actions that generate that collective change mm. and to really see that we can do powerful everyday gestures um, that help create change as well as working um, towards and in, in naming, seeing and creating structural mm. um, change within our organisations. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we can put links to things. Mm. So I'll get your website and any other resources that can help some people on the journey because there's a lot of listeners across the, the world, actually, <laughs> and some of them may be interested to find out more because I do think that Aotearoa New Zealand could actually be a leader in this area and then a model that other countries could go, oh, okay, there's, you know, look at what they did there. I know it's unique circumstances in our own context mm-hmm. as well, but um, we'll put some links in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time because you've shared with us, your, you know, your background and not having that knowledge. And then it sounds like that course in university mm-hmm. was a real critical point, but then how that's woven through your life since then and the work you're doing today. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us some of your journey. Kia ora, thank you, Stephen. And I suppose just to acknowledge too that while I talk about my story, there's all of these people who have shaped me mm-hmm. and um, and continue to, both Tangata Whenua and Tangata Triti, so he mahi a te hoki. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jen. For me, there was a bunch of highlights, and I learned a lot about the work that she's doing. Make sure you check out the show notes for links if you want to find out more. And don't forget that there's lots more interviews in the back catalog, so you might want to check those out as well. (music) 